Good morning. I have a really important life lesson to share with you today. I learned it this morning when I was putting my contacts in. Wear gloves when you cut up jalapenos. It was two days ago, and my eyes still burn this morning. So fair warning to anyone whose hand I shake today. After I shake your hand, don't touch your eyes. Uh, we are going to dive into the book of Colossians today, which I believe will have some very real, important life lessons for us as we go through it. From now until Thanksgiving, we're going to be uh, diving deep into the book of Colossians. I read the Word of God all the time for a variety of ways. I read God's Word every day. I start my day with it, usually with an app on my phone, and I'll read a, um, a section of the Bible just for devotional purposes, to connect with God in the morning, to see what do you have to say to me this morning, Lord, and to try to get into a rhythm of understanding God's mind and heart and breath. I read it casually. Um, I read it so that I can learn how to live. I read it so I can understand the mind and heart of the one who wrote it, the author. Um, sometimes I read it to study. And when I read it to study, I take out a pen and a pad. I get a commentary. I get out my big study Bible that's about this thick, because it has all the answers in the margins. I used to take out a concordance. That's kind of like an index where you can look up various words and phrases, keywords. I don't use that anymore. Now I use a search engine. It's so sweet. You just type in a phrase like, for God so loved, boom, brings up the verse for you. So when I study, I get myself all prepared. I get in a comfortable place. I usually sit at my dining room table. Once I have everything in place, this is what I do. Always, I pray. I just say, Lord, this is your book. This is your word. Holy Spirit, open my mind to what I need to learn today. Help me to understand what these words say. Help me to understand their context. But also, more than that, understand why we have these words in this book and what they mean for me and us today. So since I start that way every time I study, and we're about to jump into the book of Colossians, I would like to invite you to start that way too. I'm going to give you just 20 or 30 seconds right now to sit before the Lord and say, Here I am, Lord. Speak to me. I'm opening my mind and my heart to you. I'm giving you this time. Help me to hear today what you have to say to me. So take, that, take this moment and pray that prayer. So, Lord Jesus, here we are today in your house. We've worshiped you, we've come together, we've shaken hands, we've greeted. Now we're ready to hear from your word. So help us to open our ears and our hearts and to hear what you have to say to us today through this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses of the book of Colossians. And there's a lot in there. When I read through it this time, and I've read the book of Colossians more time than I can count. When I read it through this time, two phrases just leaped off the page at me. And when I get to those, they're sort of toward the end, verse 10, 11. I'll tell you what they are, what really spoke to me. And they might speak to you too, or something else might speak to you today. As you read God's word and you open your mind and your heart to the Holy Spirit's whisper, I promise you he will speak. Our job is to tune in and hear. I ask two questions when I read one of these New Testament letters. The book of Colossians is a letter written, uh, in this case, by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. And uh, when I read these letters, I ask two questions, and I'm going to try to let these two questions guide us as we go through. The first one is, what did this letter say to the original hearers? What did it mean to them in their original context? Why were 
these words written to them. And the second question is like it, but more applicable maybe for us today. What does this say to us today? What is this saying to me right now? What is this saying to us as Calvary Church? And we're going to find both of those questions answered as we go through, in a couple ways, as we go through these first 11 verses. So let's just jump in. Oh, let me give you a little background first. Uh, Colossae was a small market town. It was on the south bank of the Lycus River, which is present-day modern Turkey. That's about where it was located. Uh, it was 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was near Laodicea and the Hierapolis. The important part about it being 100 miles from Ephesus is how the Colossian church came to be. Paul was on his missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, and he stopped in, in the city of Ephesus because Ephesus was a big uh, um, uh, area for uh, people to travel through. There were, there were a lot of um, uh, people from all over the world who passed through Ephesus. It was an important city. Paul actually stayed there three years while he evangelized and founded the church in Ephesus. During that three-year period, a young man named Epaphras, who was an evangelist and a pastor, went into Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae, and he evangelized. And he was the one many scholars believe, even though we can't find specific evidence in the Bible text, history, and some of what the Bible says has led us to conclude that Epaphras was very likely the founding pastor of the Colossian church. He evangelized, he led them. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and then, as you may know, as he continued his missionary journeys, he ended up in prison. And many of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote, he wrote from a Roman prison under house arrest. This one, the Colossian letter, Paul wrote while he was in prison. And the reason he wrote it is Epaphras, who was pastoring that church, and things started so well, and they were going really well, but several years later got to the point where a lot of problems crept in. Some wrong thinking, some wrong philosophy, some wrong doctrine got, uh, started to take hold in the church. And Epaphras didn't know what to do, so he went to his mentor, Paul. He visited Paul in prison, and he shared the concerns with them. And here's some of what the Colossian church was dealing with. One, they had gotten... Uh, too heavily sided on a legalistic approach to their faith, works over grace. They started elevating rules and restrictions and days and observances and ceremonies over people and over grace. Legalism and a, a, a philosophy of earning God's favor by being good had started to take hold of the church. Secret knowledge. Some people were saying there are people who know more about God than others because God has given them secret knowledge. And angel worship, a little bit of angel worship was creeping into the Colossian church. It's good for us to know these things as we read through the book to understand what Paul was addressing. But the biggest one, the one that probably bothered Paul the most, was the lowering of the status of Jesus Christ. They started putting angels above Jesus in the Colossian church. They started putting rules and regulations and restrictions and traditions higher than Jesus in the church. You know this bothered Paul because he's... 26 times in this very short letter, 26 times he used the word Christ or Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus as Lord. He called Jesus Lord seven times in just these few chapters. Paul was writing to this church and telling them, remember who Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is. Now let's read, because right in the beginning of Paul's letters, and he does this all the time, by the way, if you're reading Ephesians or Colossians or Philippians, or many of the letters Paul wrote, right in the beginning when he says, hey, it's I, Paul, and I'm writing to you, he'll, the next thing he says is a hint about what the whole rest of the letter will be about. So watch for that as we start this. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1, first two verses. 
I'm just going to kind of chunk this up. We're going to go a verse or two at a time. There's so much in here. So Paul writes this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, it's easy to read through that introduction and go, there's nothing in there for me. Let's just keep reading and see what God really says to me. But there are some important words in those first few verses. Paul introduces himself as the writer of this letter. And he says, and Timothy. Timothy probably didn't pen any of the letter. He was probably visiting Paul in prison when Paul was writing the letter. And they knew Timothy. So Paul graciously included Timothy in the introduction. He said, hey, it's it's me, Paul. Timothy's here with me. And we're writing to you. Look at what he calls them. Look at what he calls them. He says, to God's holy people the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. These are important words. He calls them faithful. He calls them holy. And we're going to find out in this letter that he's calling them faithful and he's calling them holy, but he's also calling them to faithfulness and calling them to holiness. And then this next phrase, your Bible might just say brothers. This next word is adelphoi. It's a Greek word, adelphoi, and it gets translated brothers, or brothers and sisters, depends what version of the Bible you're holding in your hand. I used the NIV because I wanted the version that said brothers and sisters because Adelphoi actually doesn't address only men. Adelphoi, the best way to understand that is to think siblings. When you use the word Adelphoi in a letter like this, you're calling the church family, siblings. So what is Paul saying to this church who's struggling? who's got some false doctrine creeping in, who's in a place where maybe the ground feels like it's wavering a little bit. He says, remember to be faithful. Remember to be holy. And remember that you're family. Remember that you're brothers and sisters. I've called you together by my name, Jesus said. You belong to me. It was important for the Colossian church to remember that. And in the same way, it's important for us to remember that at Calvary right now. Right now, as God moves us through this growing process together, to remember to be faithful, to remember to choose holiness and to honor Jesus above all else, and to remember that we're brothers and sisters, that we belong together, that we need to come together just like this in this room. We need to hang around for a picnic afterward so we can shake hands and talk and connect and remember that we belong together under the name of Jesus Christ. If God is our Father, then we are his children. 1 John 3 says, Uh, What love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. And then he says right here, grace and peace to you from God our Father. It was so important in the Colossian church when things were starting to stretch and squeak and wobble for Paul to remind them about grace and to remind them about peace. We have to be people who major on these two concepts, grace and peace. Not finger pointing or judgment or complaining, as we're going to see as we read through Colossians. On grace, extending loads of grace to each other, loads of it, and peace. Be people who strive for peace. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, as much as you can do to make this happen, live at peace with all people. Now, we at Calvary here are not experiencing some of the things that the church in Colossae was experiencing. But these concepts still call to us, don't they? To be faithful, to be holy, to be brothers and sisters, to be loaded with grace and peace. All right, let's move on. Verses 3 through the first part of 6. Paul writes this. 
We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In one of my commentaries, I read something I had never thought of before. It's amazing how you can go to the Bible, you can read this passage. I can't even tell you how many times I've read this passage and never noticed this before, read right past it. But someone else who wrote a commentary noticed something that I didn't notice and pointed it out. I was like, wow, that's so great. That's amazing. It says here, we always thank God. We always thank God for your faithfulness. We always thank God for the love you've shown the people. We thank God for the hope that's poured out from you that God has given you. Why didn't Paul say, we thank you for loving the people? Why didn't Paul commend them and say, you're wonderful how you love the people? In various places in the New Testament, he commends people, but he often in his letters says, I thank God for your faithfulness. I thank God that you are loving people, that you are reaching out, that you're holding on to each other as brothers and sisters. Why would he thank God instead of them? I was like, wow, I never thought about that before. I might have just thanked them. I might have said, you guys are wonderful people, how you love each other and how you reach out and how you love. And, he, and Paul may say that also. But what he felt was the most important thing to write was we thank God. That's because faith and love for each other and for the people outside these walls, don't start with me. They start with God. I love because he first loved me. You love because he first loved you. You can show grace because he showed you grace. You have faith because he authored it. The Bible says Jesus is the author of your faith, the one who writes it, the one who starts it, and the finisher, the perfecter. He's, he's the one writing your faith journey. So of course we should thank him. Of course we should give him the credit. And out of that, it says in verse 5 that, that um, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Faith and love spring up from the hope that you have in heaven. It's this hope that we have in the gospel. It's this hope that we have, our faith that we believe when we die, there's something after this that Jesus promises us. That I know as much as I can know it, that when I breathe my last breath, and let's be really clear about this, one of these days I will breathe my last breath. One of these days my heart will stop beating. My brain will stop firing. That probably already happened, but there'll come a day when this body dies. We don't like to talk that clearly about it, do we? We try to avoid it. We don't like to go to funerals or memorial services or talk about death. But the, re the reality is, one day, even if I live 25 more years, 30 more years, 50 more years, even if I lived 100 more years, which is not going to happen, one day I will die. That knowledge used to mess with me so badly. When I was in high school, before I knew Jesus, I was terrified of death, terrified. I'd go to bed at night, lay in my bed, and I couldn't fall asleep because I was afraid if I closed my eyes, I would never wake up. Death scared the life out of me. It was so bad I developed an ulcer as a senior in high school, worrying about it. If you looked at my life, you'd say, this guy has it all together. I had friends. I was good in school. I was into sports. Everything was great. But if you looked inside me, you would have seen a person who did not understand death and was terrified by it. When I was 18 years old, I gave my life to Jesus. I invited him into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And you know what disappeared immediately? 
Immediately, I swear to it, my fear of death. I haven't feared death since because I have a hope in me that God put there that says when I die, something does come next. I'm going to stand before the Lord and I, I live my life to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And from that, from that comes faith. From that comes love. From that comes hope. From that comes grace. From that comes peace. I honestly don't know. I say this all the time. I do not know how people navigate this life without that hope, without knowing Jesus. I don't know how they do it. There's a man named David. He's a little bit older than me. He serves as, a, as an elder in the church where I was serving before I came here. Uh, his wife, Shirley, passed away last Sunday. While we were here worshiping, his wife died. And I, I reached out to him this week just to tell him how sorry I was, but um, that Shirley has what she's longed for for years. She's in the presence of Jesus. Uh, not to be trite or cliche about it, but I knew he knew that, and he said uh, he, he's brokenhearted. He's lived with her for so many years. Life partners, married, they served together in church. I would pull in, they'd both be out in the parking lot waving and welcoming as I drove in. And he said, but I know she's with Jesus. Where does that hope come from? You can't fabricate that. You can't make it up. You can't even convince yourself it's true because that will erode away over time. It takes hold when Jesus puts it there. Our faith and our hope and our love spring up. They spring up, Paul says, like a gushing fountain. And you have people in your life who need that spring of water. Calvary Church, we have people in our community who need to take a drink from that spring. You have people in your family. You have people at work. You have people in your neighborhood. You have people in your life, in your circles of influence, who need you to gush like a spring. People in this world don't know what hope looks like anymore. They don't know love and faith so much because the world doesn't operate on those principles all the time. They need to see us springing up like fresh, cool water that they can take a drink of and say, wow, where do I get some of that? You get that from Jesus. Colossians 1, the second part of verse 6 through 8. Paul wrote, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. That's the passage where we get that Epaphras was with them and went to see Paul in prison because Epaphras brought the report. And he didn't just bring a report about how bad things were in church. He went there and said, Paul, I need help figuring out how to address some of these things. But things are going really well there. The gospel is growing fruit in the world, but it's also growing fruit in the church. It's bearing fruit. This good news that Jesus saves us, this faith, this hope, this love, this grace, this peace that gushes out of us like a spring is getting other people wet, and it's growing. Let's go on, uh, verses 9 and 10, the first part of it. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. We're going to stay here for a little bit because that passage, that section that I just read, contains one of the two phrases that jumped out and grabbed my heart. And uh, um, I wonder if it will grab yours too. It says that um, Paul's thankful 
He's praying. He's praying for them to continue to grow and bear fruit. But in verse 10 right there, he says, I pray that you'd have all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Paul's praying for them that they would live a life worthy of the Lord. That's the phrase that grabbed my mind that I I thought about all week this week, live a life worthy of the Lord, because I want that. I really want to live a life worthy of the Lord. I just said it, and it's true in my life. I want to hear these words someday. I want Jesus to look me in the eye. And I know I I wouldn't have done it perfectly. I've messed up plenty of times, but I want him to look me in the eye and say, well done, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. I have good motivations for wanting to live a life worthy of the grace God has given me, of the love he's shown me. He's poured so much love in my life. We sang that song, All My Life You've Been Faithful, All My Life You've Been Good. I, I, I got choked up. I almost started crying in my seat because that is so true in my life. That song could be my anthem. All my life God has been faithful to me. All my life God has been so good. I haven't been faithful all my life. I haven't been good. But God is. God is faithful. And God is good. I want to honor that in my life. But that phrase, live a life worthy, it also connects with a broken piece in me. Maybe you have broken pieces in you. I have broken pieces in me. That Jesus has healed and is still healing. And this one, I think he'll be healing my entire life. It goes all the way back to when I was a child. I grew up feeling like I just never measured up. I just had it in me. I just wasn't as good as I should be or wanted to be or as other people. And it wasn't from my parents. I'm going to clear their name right now. I did not have overbearing, demanding mother and father. They were fine. You know where it came from? It came from me. Me. I grew up always thinking everyone else's house was better than the one I lived in. The other kids I played with had better families. Their yards were nicer. Their fathers had better jobs. Their fathers earned more money. They had nicer clothes. Their family was smarter and more beautiful and healthier. Their family was more in touch with the ways of the world, and I mean that in a good way, not in a sinful way. In my mind growing up, everybody else was always like a notch ahead of me, and I had this in me. I don't know where it came from. I've ha- I had it as long as I could remember that I just didn't measure up. My best friend... In high school, four years, we did everything together every day. We played sports together. We walked to school together, high school every day. He was always smarter than me, and he always got better grades. I didn't measure up. I played sports. There was always, I was a pretty good athlete. You wouldn't know it to look at me now, but I was a pretty good athlete. But there was always someone better. I always felt like I never measured up. So when I read this phrase, live a life worthy, you know what I hear in the back of my mind? You're not doing it. You don't measure up. you got to work harder. You have to try harder. You know what this phrase says to me? Work harder, try harder, be better. And maybe God will say you lived a life worthy. Anybody else in this room with me in that camp? Just me. Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know who I feel for when I I think about this? This um, measuring up, I I can't do it all. It's uh, working moms. If you're in the room and you're a working mom, you have children and family, household you're running, and you're working, you probably feel like you're never keeping up. Maybe you don't, you don't have that broken piece in you like I do. 
But you know what I mean? You feel like, I just can't do it all. Bearing fruit, this passage says. We've got to bear fruit. What does that mean? I have to try harder. I have to work harder. I have to create more fruit. I have to be more loving. I have to be more kind. I have to be more generous. I have to be more outgoing so I can reach people for Christ. I have to do, do, do. Is that what Paul is saying here? Live a life worthy of your calling. Live a life worthy of the grace God has shown you. Bear fruit. Get out there and get working. You might hear that in those words. I'm not sure that's what he means here. I go to my garden. I like to garden. In the, in the late spring, like May, June, I start putting uh, a garden together, tomatoes and, and basil, and I'm thinking about the pizza I'm going to make in a few months. I grow things I like to eat. My wife likes to garden. She grows things that are pretty. None of her flowers taste good. <laughs> How does that garden grow? How does it grow? Healthy plants grow. They don't grow because they're trying hard or trying harder than the tomato plant next to them. They grow because that's what a plant does. If I provide the right environment for it, if I pull the weeds, if I break up the soil, if I give it water and sun, it will grow and it will bear fruit. I don't have to get out there and shake the life into it to say, bear fruit, will you? It just does because it's planted in the ground and it's got the right conditions. So when we're thinking about bearing fruit, let's think about the garden. Our job is to just put ourselves in the right circumstances, provide the right environment. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you want to bear fruit, remain in me. That's what John 15 says. Go read John 15. The whole chapter is all about that. Stay connected to Jesus and you will bear fruit. We get that mixed up sometimes. We think if I bear fruit, then Jesus will stay connected to me. Our job isn't to bear fruit. It's not to work at bearing fruit. Our job is to stay connected to Jesus. And out of that, fruit will come. The work of the Christian life is staying connected to the vine. The work in my life is opening my Bible every day. It's reading the Word. It's praying. It's opening myself up to the movement of the Spirit. It's being around other Christians so I can see what it looks like to live like Jesus. It's being in community. It's worshiping together. It's joining a discipleship class. Bill announced those earlier. Why would you do that? Why would you stay here an extra hour to sit in a class? Because you're tending your garden. You're providing the right environment so that you can grow. And what will come out of that growth is fruit. I grow fig trees. I'm, I'm a fig tree fanatic. I grow fig trees like crazy. I've got little ones. I've got big ones. Right now, I'm bringing in a bowl of figs every day from my fig trees. Now, if you've never had a fresh fig, you're thinking Fig Newton, that dried variety. That's not what comes off my tree. This is the juiciest, tastiest thing I put in my mouth all summer long. It's delicious. How do my trees produce fruit? I take care of them. I give them a little pruning, I give them some water, I keep them in the sun, and I watch them grow. That's what God does with us. He waters us, he keeps us in the sun, he gives us a little pruning, and he watches us grow. Healthy plants grow and bear fruit. I have to remember that when I read this passage so I don't get this mixed up. Live worthy doesn't mean work. It actually literally translates, get this word, walk. Live worthy doesn't translate work. It translates 
walk. Isn't there a big difference there? What Paul is saying here is walk in the Lord. As you walk through your life, walk in the Lord. Walk with each other. Walk in his presence. Walk in his grace. Walk in his mercy. Walk in his word. Walk. Your word's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You lead me, Holy Spirit, through my day. You walk with me, Jesus. As I walk, I'm living a life that pleases God. Last week, I actually forgot to say one thing that I thought was so important. If you were here last week, you went home with only 90% of what you needed. Here's the other 10. The passage I read from Ephesians chapter 2, the very last phrase, if you, were, uh, if you watched online or you were here, you remember we ended with this concept that you are God's masterpiece. You are God's poem. That you were created. You are God's workmanship created for, do you know what came next after that? For good works in Christ Jesus. And what really struck me in that passage was that was the last thing Paul said. First he said you were dead and you were made alive in Christ. Then he said you were saved not by works but by grace so that no one can boast. Then he said God is turning you into a masterpiece, a poem, a beautiful expression. And the very last thing he said was that you were created for good works. I think it's significant that that came last and not first. That he didn't start with go do good works. He started with grace and God's work in our lives, and what God is doing, and what should come out of that, what should grow out of that, is good works. Colossians um, 1, the second half of 10 to um, verse 11. That we would grow in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. The Colossian church was going through a difficult time. And Paul said they needed to be um, strengthened with all power, that they needed to have great endurance and patience. This is the second phrase that grabbed me. It's actually in one of the versions. It, it, It didn't say great endurance and patience. It said patient endurance. And I know what endurance is. Endurance is you keep going and you have the strength to keep going. The Bible calls us to persevere through hard times. Persevering means when things are hard, I decide I'm still going to take one more step. I'm still going to get up one more day. I'm still going to try one more time. That's perseverance. It's even though this doesn't seem like it's getting better, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to persevere. And we're called all over the New Testament to persevere through our trials. Endurance is the strength to persevere. Persevere is the decision I'm going to take this step. Endurance makes me able to keep taking it to have the strength. Where does that strength come from? Again, not from me. It says that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that we can have great endurance and patience. Endurance continues on. Ours is the choice that says, I'll do it. God is the one who gives us strength that says, I'll make you able. Romans 15, 4 through 6 says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. Oops. So that with one mind and one voice, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I wasn't just thinking about endurance, I was thinking about patient endurance, and I got a fresh look at this this past spring from a young woman named Esther. Esther is 18 years old. 
She was serving in the youth group as a helper in the church where I was uh, serving before here. And Esther's turn came around to uh, teach one night at the youth group gathering. And she wanted to share her story. She wanted to talk about some of the things she went through in life and high school. And she said, can I get together with you and just share what I'm thinking and you can kind of help me put this together into a talk? I said, I'd love to. So Esther and I, we talked on the phone for about an hour. And she was telling me about some of her struggles growing up through childhood, and some of her challenges in high school, and how she had to endure more things than I would have guessed about her. And she said this, that when I share this tonight or this week with the high schoolers, I want them to relate to some of my challenges. I said, Esther, they will, I promise you. She said, but I want them to also think about endurance, and not just endurance, but patient endurance. Here's what Esther said, 18 years old. She said to me over the phone, we're not called to just endure. We're called to endure with patience. Wow. I thought that was brilliant. There's a big difference between enduring through a hard time and enduring with patience. Because I can go through a hard time. I can stick with it. I can keep taking one step, one in front of the other, one in front of the other, but I could do it grumbling. I could do it with a wrong attitude. I could do it angry at God. I could do it dissatisfied and disappointed. But the Bible calls us to patient endurance. And I know you've heard this. It's all over the New Testament. But you know where it's scattered all over the pages of? The book of Revelations, which you spent a year going through with Pastor Peter. And there are so many places in there where Christians are facing trials and they're called to endure with patience. I don't always want to endure with patience. If I'm in a struggle, I want it over with. If I'm in a challenge, I want to get to the end of it. And I believe God will get me to the end. But I don't like to wait. I like his answer now. My wife and I have a, a challenge in our lives that it weighs heavy on our hearts. She and I pray about it every day. We have for a couple of years. A couple of years. And we both believe God is going to bring a victory and a, a deliverance in it. But we don't know when. We don't know when. That's the hard part about being in a trial, isn't it? You can believe that God is going to get you through it. You can believe there's hope on the other side. You can believe it will get resolved someday, or it will get better, or God will come through. The hard part is you don't know when. Eventually. We were, uh, uh, my wife and I were in the YouVersion app. Do you use the YouVersion app on your phone? It was one day this past week, I think, and it made a reference to Hannah in the Old Testament. Hannah wanted to have a baby, and she was barren, and she pleaded with God, pleaded with God, pleaded with God for a baby. And so much time went by, no answer, no answer, no answer. And finally, God gave her a baby Samuel. And she brought that baby Samuel to the temple and dedicated him to the Lord. But we, we got thinking about Heidi and I as we talked about it, was that amount of time between when Hannah first started praying and God answered. That's the endurance part. That's the patient endurance part. And this word eventually really came to the surface as we talked. I think Hannah believed eventually God would answer. In my life, I believe eventually God would answer. In your life, you're hanging on to, eventually God will answer. But the hard part is, you don't know how long eventually will be. And that's where the patient endurance comes in. Now, I know in a, in a room this size, with this many people, that if I talk about a hardship or a trial and patient endurance, there are a significant number of us in the room who are in the middle of one right now. You might be in the middle of one right now. Things aren't going like they should at work or in your family or in your marriage or with your kids 
or with your finances, or with your future. I don't know, there are all kinds of struggles we can be in the middle of. And you're listening to me thinking, I want God to come through, but it's been so long, and he doesn't seem like he's answering. And you don't know how long eventually is going to last. God will come through eventually, but when? When will he? So I want to end us with a time of prayer on that. And I'm going to call the band up so they can get ready to go. So band, if you're out here, you can start making your way up. And I want to recognize that the, the, the things we've covered in this passage are inspiring and hopeful to be people of grace and love and to be springs of water that spill over on other people. But some of the things in this passage are hard. Maybe you connected with what I was sharing about, I don't feel like I measure up. I still struggle with that sometimes, even though I've, Jesus has mostly healed me from it. It still will come back and bite me where I don't feel like I measure up. I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I'm worthy of God. Or maybe you're in the middle of some kind of trial or struggle or challenge. And you're just wondering, when are you going to come through, God? When are you going to come through? I'd like to give you a chance to sit with Jesus with that for a moment. Maybe in this next minute, while we sit quietly, you just say, God, what are you saying to me today? Or maybe God has spoken to you and you say, this is what I hear today, Lord. What do I do with it? Or maybe you're here and you're in a little bit of a hurting place. And when I was talking about endurance and challenge and measuring up, your heart was beating along with mine on that. Just bring it to Jesus right now. You take a minute to pray and then I'm going to pray over us. Jesus, hear the cry of our hearts. I believe you have spoken today and that many of us in the room have heard with our hearts what you've said. I believe that there are many of us here that, that hits a hurting place, a painful place, a scar or a wound. So I pray, Jesus, you would meet that person right there, right now, in this quiet place to whisper healing and grace and wholeness and love. And some of us were just convicted. You spoke to us and we're resistant. So help us to break down our resistance, Lord. And for those of us in a trial, we want to persevere, we want to endure, but it's hard, so hard. Give us strength, Lord. So I want to pray right now for the person who's in the middle of a trial who's been putting one foot in front of the other and just feels like they're running out of strength. I just don't know if I can keep putting one foot in front of the other on this one. That you, Jesus, would give them strength to persevere and endure because you are the one who gives encouragement and strength and endurance. And now, Lord, may your blessing and the power of your presence rests upon us. Amen.